As we gather back together, would you please take your Bible or electronic device and find Mark chapter 9. We've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Mark. We started, I think, in June last year, and we're at the halfway point. While you're turning there, maybe in your house you eat with your fingers off paper plates, and that's totally fine. But my wife likes for us to use utensils, so we use forks and spoons and that kind of thing. And, and there are times when she wants it to be more of a special meal, and there are place settings. There's, there's your napkin and your fork, and, and everything's all set out there. Well, my favorite utensil is the one that's up at the top. Do you know what we call the one that goes up at the top? It's usually a fork or a spoon. It's the dessert fork. And even if you don't have anything else to eat with, it's good to know that there's dessert coming because that is a sign of things to come. It, it's a sneak preview. It, it's the promise. There's even a verse about that. Let me show you this verse. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that's that, divert, that dessert fork. That, that's your illustration for today of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Dessert is what I am hoping for. It is the evidence of things not seen. I haven't seen the dessert yet. It's not on my plate yet. But I believe it's coming because there's a fork there or a spoon. That's the idea of today, that Jesus has given his disciples something to expect in the future. Let me review just a little bit for those of you who haven't been in our study the last two weeks. Other people thought that Jesus was either John the Baptist or Elijah, or one of the prophets. And that wasn't correct. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave the best answer possible. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And we know that the Holy Spirit revealed that to Peter to make that great confession. But Jesus didn't want them to tell anybody. He said, don't tell anybody. And we talked about why not. Because they didn't understand what that meant. Yes, they understood he was the Messiah, but they didn't know what that meant because they thought the Messiah was going to be a military leader to help them overthrow Rome and launch a revolution. That's what they expected. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to be a suffering servant, as we talked about. as part of the theme of the book of Mark. He continued to clarify for them, set them straight, by explaining that Messiah had come to suffer, to die, to rise again after three days. And that didn't set well with Peter. So after saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God, just a few minutes later, it seems, Peter takes Jesus aside. Now, he does it privately, I guess respectfully, and says, that's not how it's going to go down. No, you have this wrong. He rebuked Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, rebuked him and all the other disciples, because probably all the other disciples had the same idea about who the Messiah was and what he was supposed to do. And Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. You are of a spirit, an attitude, a thought process straight from hell. What was that thought process? That Jesus could be the Messiah and receive the glory of the kingdom without suffering first. That's what Satan had offered him in the temptation. To say, I will have all the... Nations of the world bow down before you. If you'll just worship me first, I'll give all that to you. And what was he really saying? And you won't have to go die on the cross. It will be a painless messiahship. 
And that is not what God the Father and God the Son planned in eternity past. So Jesus rebuked Peter and the other disciples. And then went a step further, and that's where, where we got into last week, starting in verse 34, that in order to follow him, you have to do three things. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, which really means die to yourself, and continue to follow Christ. We spent a while talking about what that meant last week. That gets us to where we are this morning. And if you will, you've hopefully had time to find the passage, stand with me. I'm going to read for us Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Elijah does come first. And restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, you are great, you are glorious. And you have shown us your glory in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is our desire this morning, in what we have sung, in praying right now, in reading your word, in studying it together, that we would give you glory. We have sung that you are worthy. We have read that you are worthy, and we believe that. And so we ask that you would help us during this time both to focus our thoughts on you and on this passage and to learn from you what that means, in what ways you are worthy, in what ways you are glorious. Father, I ask for your help this morning, the help of your Holy Spirit to enable me to teach your word accurately and clearly that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to know how this passage applies to us, what we're supposed to do with it. We know that your word won't return void to you. We claim that promise this morning and we ask you to do what you do best, reveal the Son by the help of your Holy Spirit. Get glory to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. 
If you haven't already figured it out, I believe this passage is all about glory, Jesus' glory. And yet, if you read, you're not going to find the English word glory in this section in Mark. You know what else? If you could read it in Greek, you're not going to find the word glory in Greek either in Mark, his account. But this passage, we usually call it the transfiguration. We'll get to that term in a few minutes. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each one gives us a little bit different details. And that word glory does appear in Luke's passage. Why do I think it's about God's glory? Well, I'm going to share with you a a brief quote from Warren Wiersbe. He says that this event is a vivid confirmation of Jesus' words as recorded in Mark 8.38. Well, what does Mark 8.38 say? You're right there. Either scroll up or, or look up the page. What does 8.38 say? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. There's that word. The glory of his Father with the holy angels. What's he saying? He said, if you're ashamed of me now, if you are not my disciple following me now, then I will be ashamed of you when I come back. He is predicting, prophesying of his second coming. We understand that. They weren't expecting two comings. They didn't get that as they read the Old Testament, and we probably wouldn't have either. But he was there there telling them, if you're ashamed of me now, I am going to be ashamed of you later. And what does that really mean? That means that you will be separated from me for eternity. Now I'm going to go back to this quote. This event is a vivid confirmation of Jesus' words as recorded in Mark 8, 38, that he was going to return in glory, as well as a demonstration of the glory of the future kingdom. Well, we can find that in Mark 9, 1. Look right there. It's the verse before where I started. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. The kingdom of God is going to come with power. And there are some of you, who's he talking to? His disciples. There are some of you, primarily focusing on the 12, the some of you would be the three we see in this account, who aren't going to die, that's what taste death means, until you get to see a sneak preview of the kingdom. When I began, I gave you that silly illustration about the dessert fork. It is a sneak preview. It's the idea that something's coming. This, for the disciples, was a reassurance of several things. And one of them was that he is going to assume his glory as, as they expected him just to come in and overthrow Rome and bring in the kingdom. It didn't look like what they thought. It didn't come in the timing that they thought. So what is the main point that I want you to get out of this day? Because... Most of you in the room, if you've gone to church before, if you've read the Bible before, you probably know the story of the transfiguration. But why is it here? Why is it in the Bible? So what? That's what I want to answer this morning. And I'm going to do it with this statement, a very simple statement. Jesus is coming in glory. Isn't that what he predicted? That the Son of Man will come in glory with his holy angels? He's going to come in judgment. He's going to come a second time. So tuck that away. We will come back to it at the end. And I'm going to go back to verse 2, and we'll work our way through the passage verse by verse. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
Which three disciples? Peter, James, John. James and John are brothers, sometimes called the sons of thunder. Why these three? The truth is, I don't know. We sometimes call them the inner circle, the ones who are closest to Jesus. Some have suggested maybe, maybe they were more interested in the things of God, or maybe they were more willing to make the sacrifices required. Maybe. I don't see a lot of that. There's some evidence in the Gospels. I've joked before with you what some other people suggest, that they were the troublemakers, and he had to keep them close to keep them out of trouble. Maybe, but that's probably not why he took them up there. In his sovereignty, these were the three he was closest to, and he chose them to see some things that nobody else got to see. Earlier we saw he took only these three with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Only those three got to see it. Here we have the transfiguration. Only these three got to see it. Later, these are the only three who were with him. He, he asked them specifically to come pray with him in the garden. So they were the closest ones, and that's who he chose. There, are, there may be a simpler explanation. We've talked about this before. How many witnesses are required for something under Jewish law? Two or three. Well, this is three. So Jesus has enough witnesses to confirm what's about to happen. They went into a high mountain. They climbed up a high mountain. He led the way for them. Most likely this is Mount Hermon, which is close to Caesarea Philippi. That's where they are based on the previous chapter, verse 27. It is the highest mountain around that area. It is about 9,200 feet above sea level and has snow white caps throughout the year. Mountains in Scripture are often associated with being close to God and receiving information from God. Think in, in terms of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. Think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and God answered with fire. It says that he took them apart by themselves. They were alone. There were no other people there, just the four of them at first. And it says he began to be transfigured, literally transformed before them. The Greek word behind this is gives us our English word metamorphosis. You remember that from biology class? A caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's transformation from the inside out. That's what's going on with Jesus in this passage. He is being changed into another form. This word is used two other places in the New Testament. Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that's the transformation that's supposed to take place in us. That transformation from the inside out, how's it going to happen? By the renewing of our mind. We know that is through the scripture itself. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed, same word, into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are being transformed into the image of God. How's that happening? By the word of God, by the spirit of God. We are becoming more like the image of God. That's the son of God. So that's the word. That's how it's used later in the New Testament. He is transformed. He is metamorphosizing in front of them. What does that mean? Well, for a brief time, Jesus' body, remember he's fully God, fully man, his human body began to glow. It was bright. We, we talked earlier in our scripture reading that 
glory can mean brightness. So this brightness is emanating. It is coming through what he's wearing. What is it showing? It is a sneak peek that these three disciples got of what he will look like when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. Now we think that's amazing. Wouldn't that have been cool to see? It's a miracle. And some people pointed out, yeah, kind of, but the greater miracle is that for the rest of his time on earth, that was veiled. That was kept in because he was God the whole time. That type of brilliant white light radiance was there all along, but he kept it concealed, except in this brief time on top of the mountain with three of his disciples. Verse 3 says, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. This is his divine glory. His clothes are whiter than any of your moms or dads, any of you who are really good with laundry. I don't care what bleach you have. I don't care what OxyClean you have. You can't get it as white as his clothes were in that moment. They were glowing. And perhaps it wasn't the clothes themselves. Perhaps it was him glowing inside the clothes he was wearing. That may be the more likely way of saying it. So there are some other details I mentioned to you. Matthew and Luke also tell us about it. Matthew 17, 2, he was transfigured before them, same term. His face shone like the sun. Think how bright the sun is. We're not supposed to look at, like, look at the sun. If we look at the sun, it could make us go blind. That level of brightness from his face and his clothes became as white as the light. Luke 9, as he prayed, because Luke tells us that they were there to pray. And as the disciples were so prone to do, they fell asleep while he was praying. And they woke up. I don't know about you. I'm light sensitive. So they broke up. They woke up to this kind of light breaking through. Luke 9 says, as he prayed, the appearance of his face, again, focusing on the face, was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Now put yourself in their place for a minute. If you saw this, would it have made an impression on you, do you think? It would have made an impression on me. Do you think they would have remembered this? They did. I know how two of them, that they remembered it, because they wrote about it. So here is John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld, here it is, his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you ever stopped to think you probably have those verses memorized? We know John 1 really well. He's talking about the transfiguration. When else would John have gotten to behold God's glory? That's probably a trick question because we had the book of Revelation also and he got the vision on the Isle of Patmos. But I believe he's talking about the transfiguration here. What about Peter? Peter wrote two epistles. In the second one, the first chapter, he said, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We weren't making it up. We weren't just giving you the latest gossip when we told you about the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, here it is, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Synonym for glory. Synonym for transfiguration. How do we know that's what he's talking about? For he received from God the Father honor and there it is again glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory using glory in lieu of heaven in that verse 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We're going to get to that later in the passage. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You think there's any question of what he's talking about? He's saying, this is how we know about the power and glory of God because we saw it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we read this and think, yeah, this is just another thing that's in all the gospels. I've read it before. I've heard it preached on before. This was a big deal. And I don't think these guys ever got over it in their human lives. They got to see something we have not seen with our eyes. They got to see it with their human eyes. They got to see a glimpse of the greatness of God, the glory of God manifesting itself, coming out of as light, coming out of Jesus. Jesus was transformed, transformed before them, and then Elijah and Moses appeared. This is verse 4. And Elijah appeared for, to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. For whatever reason, Mark gives us Elijah before Moses. The other two list them differently, but they're both there. Why? Why Elijah and Moses? It could have been Jeremiah. It could have been Isaiah. It could have been Daniel. It could have been Aaron, the first priest. Could have been Abraham. We might have chosen differently, but he chose, and I'm going to give you a few different reasons that it might be the reasons God had Elijah and Moses come talk with him. Here's what I found. Both these men had previously talked with God on mountaintops. We have Mount Sinai. We have Mount Horeb, Carmel. Both of them had been shown God's glory in a way that most people hadn't. Again, those of you on our reading plan, you've read through the end of Exodus now, and you get to read, God allowed Moses to see part of his glory, see him from behind, because no one can see God's face and live, is, is what Exodus tells us there. So Moses had an experience with God's glory. Elijah certainly had an experience with God's glory. I would say two of them. The fire of God falling... That must have been a glorious experience. But also, when he ran away from that, he was by himself, he was in a cave, and God came to him and spoke to him, and we have the fire, and we have the whirlwind, and then we have that still, small voice, not the way he would have expected, not the way we would expect, but he got to experience the glory of God. So Elijah and Moses, two men who got to experience God's glory. What about their departures from this earth? Moses was buried on Mount Nebo by God himself. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So we have these two men. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Now, we refer to the Old Testament. We've talked about this before. How did they refer to the writings that we call the Old Testament. They would call them the scriptures. Sometimes they would call them what? The law and the prophets. We have representatives here of what we would call the Old Testament. And they're coming and they're talking to Jesus at his transfiguration on the mountain. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. There he is, fulfilling in his glory the law and the prophets. 
in terminology used elsewhere in the Gospels, a greater than Moses is there and a greater than Elijah is there, a greater than the law is there, a greater than the prophets is there. But he's there talking with these two. Their appearance showed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. There's one more thing that I think is significant. You may disagree with me on it, but I believe in the rapture of the church. And because of that, we have an example of a saint, Moses, who has died and been buried. And we have an example of one who was taken up without dying. And so maybe we also have those two groups represented here, the resurrected saints and the raptured saints. Now I said I would do my best to give you some reasons why it would go Moses and Elijah, but has anybody wondered how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Was there a little tag that said, hello, my name is Moses, hello, my name is Elijah? I don't think that's how they knew. I can't say that wasn't true, but I don't think that's what happened. It wasn't the t-shirt he was wearing. Somehow they just knew. And I think that's reassuring because some of you have loved ones who are in heaven. And sometimes you may wonder, are they going to know me? Am I going to know them? Are we going to recognize people when we get to heaven? Yeah, I believe we are. By this point, we have Moses that had been dead for 1,400, 1,500 years, somewhere like that. And Elijah, for quite some time, several hundred years, and there they are. They are still alive and well, if I could say it that way. In fact, Moses finally got to be in the promised land right here on the Transfiguration, Mount of Transfiguration. So somehow they just knew. The promise is that we're not going to know less in heaven than we do on earth. Isn't that reassuring? First Corinthians says that I shall know just as I also am known. God knows us completely. God knows us perfectly. We will have that kind of knowledge someday with him in heaven. And what are they doing there? They're talking with Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. Luke does. Luke 9.31, who appeared in glory, talking about Moses and Elijah, appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, or your translation might say departure. Literally, your translation could read exodus. Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and what are they talking about? They're talking about his exodus. What does that mean? What was the original Exodus? The book of Exodus is named for the departure of the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, out of slavery, and God brought them out and took them to their own land. What is Jesus about to do? He's about to die for the people, die for the entire world. He loved the world so much that he sent his son so that those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He is going to die for the people. And in so doing, he is going to free slaves of sin. That's the exodus he's talking about. He's going to accomplish this through his death, and it doesn't end there. His resurrection. That's what's coming. That's what they were discussing. I would love to have heard that conversation. Verse 5. Then Peter answered, Many have pointed out that no one asked him a question, but he answered. 
Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Rabbi is a respectful term. Most of you are familiar with it. It means teacher, master. So he starts off well. He says, it is good for us to be here. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. In modern terminology, he may have just been saying, this is cool. I am so glad we get to be here right now. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What does he mean by tabernacles? Think tent or booth. It would be a temporary residence, like a lean-to. So it could be that Peter is suggesting, let's get some shelter for you guys, and let's, let's camp out here for a while. That could be it. If we want to spiritualize what Peter's thinking, and this might really be what he was thinking, he may have believed that the millennial kingdom is about to take place because there's a prophecy in Zechariah 14 that says the beginning of the kingdom is going to involve celebrating tabernacles, celebrating the feast of booths. And he may have been saying, this is it, let's go. This is the beginning of the kingdom. We're going to celebrate the feast of tabernacles. Let's do it. When he says one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah... That's a problem. Because what he's doing there is similar to what he had done the week before. I, I explained it to you. He, he rebuked Jesus and said, no, this isn't the kind of Messiah you're supposed to do. This isn't the plan. We need to do it this way instead. That's kind of the same idea here. He's making the same mistake as the people, the multitudes. Because when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? What did they say? Well, some think... Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. What's he doing here? He's putting Jesus on the same level with Elijah and Moses. Does Jesus belong on the same level with Elijah and Moses? No, because he's the Messiah. He's Christ. He's the Son of God. He is God. Now, depending on your personality, you may be thinking, yeah, I probably would have said something stupid too. Or you may be thinking, I would never say anything. But why did he say what he said? Mark, working with Peter, probably, says why he said it. He did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. The only other place this term for greatly afraid appears is in Hebrews 12, and it's talking about Moses being on the mount of God and how scared he was to be in the presence of God. Verse 7, and a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Peter had the privilege of being interrupted by God the Father. Being rebuked as he was the previous week by God the Son. So this cloud, we could also call it a glory cloud. This is the Shekinah glory. This is the same type of cloud, remember, when, they were, when the children of Israel were up against the Red Sea, they had the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and later they dedicated the tabernacle, and a cloud came down and filled the tabernacle. Later, Solomon built the temple. They dedicated the temple, and a cloud came and filled the temple so that the priests couldn't continue ministering. That's the idea here. This is the presence of God as he so often appeared in the Old Testament, as a cloud. 
glory. And he's there, and there is a voice out of the cloud, and he says, this is my beloved son. Does this sound familiar? Those of you who've read the Gospels, those of you who've been here for earlier parts of our, our series on Mark, when have we heard that before? This is my beloved son. Chapter 1, and what happened in chapter 1? The baptism. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, that voice came from heaven as a stamp of approval on the ministry really on his life so far, but on the ministry he was beginning. The Holy Spirit came and empowered him, we know. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we get a little extra instruction this time. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Who do we have there? We have Jesus, Moses, Elijah. Son of God, law, prophets. When you have those three to choose from, which one should you listen to? Jesus. Now, is Jesus going to contradict the law and the prophets? No, I I realize that. But Jesus is more important, more glorious than the law and the prophets. He is more important in that sense than Moses. Because here's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from your midst, from your brethren, and what else does he say? Him you shall hear. Many people believe this is a reference to the prophet that Moses promised. And God the Father is putting his stamp of approval on what Jesus has done in his ministry for two and a half, three years, somewhere in that time frame. Everything he has done has been according to the Father's plan, according to the Father's timing. And he has done all things well, and he is the authority you need to listen to. He is the authority you need to obey. Yes, Moses, great man of God, served God faithfully. Elijah, great prophet of God, served God faithfully. But when it comes down to it, hear Jesus. He is the one. He is the authority. He is the one we must listen to, trust in, and obey. And if we didn't get it from him telling us to hear him, Visually, it's about to happen. Look at verse 8. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Please get that. If you mark in your Bible, underline that, circle that. Only Jesus. That is whom we need to hear. That is whom we need to love. That is whom we need to serve. That is whom we need to obey. Only Jesus. Some suggested that God's solution to their confusion, Peter's in particular, was just to remove Moses and Elijah from view. And now his son is the only one that they see. Now the Mount of Transfiguration, this was a high point, of course, in the Lord's earthly ministry. But from now on, his path is going to be downhill in the sense that he is headed to the cross. He is headed to Jerusalem. That's what many more of these statements are going to make clear. Verse 9, now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This incidentally is the only time in the Gospels he put a time limit on how long somebody wasn't supposed to tell. Why weren't they supposed to tell? Because they didn't get it. 
we talked about it last week, they didn't understand what type of Messiah he was. And any attempt to proclaim it was just going to result in confusion at that point. But after he rose from the dead, they understood it. The Holy Spirit helped them to understand the purpose of this first coming and the meaning of the transfiguration. But what did they latch onto? What were they most confused by? The rising from, your translation may say, among the dead. That's what's literally in the Greek. The rising out from among the dead. Why was that confusing to them? Because they had the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Old Testament idea of resurrection was there's gonna be a time when everybody who's died is gonna come back to life. They did not understand the idea that we have in the New Testament of a first resurrection and a second resurrection. They just thought there was a general resurrection of everybody. So how can Jesus be talking about rising out from among the dead? How can there be one person being raised from the dead apart from the general resurrection? Well, I guess he'd hinted at it by this point. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. This is possible, we know from book of John that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead but this was confusing to them because Jesus was making it sound like he was going to rise from the dead soon and they expected the rising from the dead to be everybody at the end of the age verse 11 and they asked him saying why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first now it would have been nice if they'd asked about rising from the dead that's what they were talking with each other about but the only thing that they asked him about was Elijah. We just saw Elijah. And they're wanting to know, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. Now, what I'm about to try to explain to you, I think is a little confusing. So I'm going to start off with a statement that I hope will help. Elijah has come, and Elijah is coming. So if you don't get anything else I said, Elijah has come, and Elijah is coming. There's a sense in which Elijah comes twice in the same way that Jesus comes twice. You say, what are we talking about? Elijah is coming first is what their scribes were teaching, and they were right. They had it right on this because they were going to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, understanding that Elijah would come prior to the Messiah coming. But now they have a problem in their mind because they've already confessed, you are the Messiah. And now we've seen Elijah, but Elijah's supposed to come before the Messiah. Huh, how does this work? In the description, the, the explanation Jesus gives, he said that the prophecies of Elijah's coming had been fulfilled in John the Baptist. If you read what we read back at Christmas time, the prophecy from the angel to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, said he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. What's he going to do? He's going to cry in the wilderness and proclaim the day of the Lord, make the path straight, be the forerunner to the Messiah, prepare the way, and he also is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers. There's going to be a restoration. That's what was predicted. There's a problem here, though. 
The nation of Israel and the world at large did not accept the ministry of John the Baptist. There were some who came out, many actually, who came out and they repented of their sins and they were baptized in the Jordan by John. But they didn't recognize John as Elijah. He was there in the spirit of Elijah. He was not, please make this clear, he was not Elijah reincarnated. He was John the Baptist, a unique person, the greatest, according to Jesus. But he was there in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was having a ministry like Elijah. He was out there in the wilderness with his camel skin and his locusts. And he was there in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he was not accepted in the same way that Jesus was going to be rejected. He was not accepted as the Messiah the first time he came. And because of that, Elijah, or one like him, will be sent prior to the second coming of Christ. Well, what's that all about? I personally believe, and you don't have to believe this, this is a personal opinion, we talked about it when we did Revelation 11, that the two witnesses that come, I believe they're Moses and Elijah. They are certainly like Moses and Elijah. I think everybody has to agree on that. You can look it up if you want to, Revelation 11. That will be, I believe, the fulfillment, a secondary fulfillment, the literal fulfillment of Elijah's going to come and the Messiah is going to come. Prior to the second coming, Elijah will come again. Now, what does he mean they did to him? They did to John the Baptist as they would. What had happened to John the Baptist by this point? His head was cut off. There's no Old Testament prophecy saying that that's going to happen to Elijah. But, remember, John the Baptist is there in the spirit and power of Elijah. What was threatened of Elijah? After the prophets of Baal were slaughtered, they were first defeated, then slaughtered on Mount Carmel, Jezebel said, by this time tomorrow, you are a dead man. And so, what makes the most sense in the commentaries that I read, the study that I did this week, is that Jesus is referring to what was predicted for Elijah by Jezebel happened to the one who came to fulfill a type of Elijah, John the Baptist. I hope that makes sense. If you have questions about it, you can talk to me more about it later. That's what it means they did to him as it is written of him. Now coming back to the main point, the main point isn't about Moses or Elijah or John the Baptist. The main point's about Jesus. Jesus is coming in glory. These three disciples got a glimpse of what that will look like when he comes in glory, when he comes to reign, when he comes literally, physically to establish his kingdom on earth. What should we do with that today? Because the transfiguration, none of us is going to see that. It has come and gone. It happened. And only three people on earth saw it. So what does this mean to us today? We need to be ready. Because the whole time we've been focused on Jesus is coming in his glory. But we need to remember, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He could come at any time. Yes, there are events. Yes, I believe in a rapture. That could happen today. That could happen before we're finished. And that would be great. But are we ready? You're in one of two groups. Either you're a believer or you're not yet a believer. You're an unbeliever. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, 
when he comes a second time, he's going to come to judge the earth and anyone who has not believed on him is going to be eternally separated from him in a place of fire and torment. And I would not that, want that for you or anyone. And so your invitation today is to respond to Jesus as the Savior. Believe in him, call on him. Turn from your sins and turn to him. How can you be ready for his coming? By believing on him today. The day you have. Now most of you in the room, I know the testimony of your words, of your life. You've done that. Are you ready? Did it enter your mind this week that Jesus could come back? Because First John says that he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. God's will for us is to be conformed to the image of his son. Are you any more like Jesus than you were yesterday, last week, last year, last decade? Not are you sinlessly perfect, because none of us will be, but is there a progression? Are you purifying yourself? Are you becoming more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in you? If so, then you're ready. What does his glory mean? Coming back to our definition from earlier, putting him first. Believer, is God, is Jesus first in your life, in your priorities, in your time, in your money, in your decisions? Is he first? If so, that brings him glory. If not, that robs him of his glory. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Our Father, we pray that you would show each person here, any person who's joining us online, exactly what you want us to do with this today. We're not going to see the Mount of Transfiguration the way these disciples did. But we desire to see you, and we desire to see your glory. And that could happen any day. I pray that we will be ready. I pray for anyone who does not yet know you as Savior, that this would be the day of salvation, that this would be the day he or she calls on you for forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. Father, if there is any believer here who is not serious about you and about bringing you glory, draw that one back to yourself. Bring back that child to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.